As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today we have Ryan Drake Lee, Senior Principal at Keystone Strategy. Ryan is a Haas MBA alum and an experienced leader and problem solver focusing on technology strategy, digital transformation, operational excellence, and litigation support. Ryan's experience includes a diverse set of industries, including technology, retail, consumer packaged goods, airlines, oil and gas, and telecommunications. Ryan, welcome and great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much, Chris. Glad to uh, be here. Thanks. Absolutely. Ryan, we're, we're super excited to have you um, on the podcast. One of the first questions that we typically start when we're, we connect on these podcasts is, is really just to talk about your early life. And did you always know that you would be uh, as successful as, as you are today when you were maybe growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area and just a young student and a young person uh, growing up in this area? Thanks for the question, Chris. I can't say that I did. I have to, <laughs> I will admit that I was born and raised in San Francisco. I went to a bilingual school from K through 12, French American International School. So at an early age, I was exposed to, uh, you know, diverse student body and international experience and, and cultures. I'd say some experiences that shaped my youth and outlook on the world were certainly cultural exchange programs that I was fortunate enough to participate in going to. France, going to Paris, France, and having a exchange student come to my house in, in seventh grade and eighth grade, as oh, well wow. as fifth grade. I skipped that one. And then also having a similar cultural exchange trip to Tahiti in 10th grade. So all of those uh, experiences really you know, opened up my mind and my aperture to the world. And I'd say early on, my dad was an influence on me in being drawn towards business and economics. We used to read the Wall Street Journal together. And I was, uh, you know, influenced by that. And he, you know, would point me towards business articles and topics of interest of his. And then I pursued an international baccalaureate education in high school offered by French American. So took economics classes. And I still remember my economics teacher from IB named Bruno Veros, who really opened up my mind to just basic econ principles, supply and demand, and really the study of choice. I became interested in economics as the study of choice and, and behavior and just kind of seeing how that discipline, right, played out in lots of, you know, choices and decisions and how the world and economies work. So that's a little bit about my early education. For a lot of Haasis or folks who are interested at in coming to Haas, typically they're coming later in life for the MBA program, and maybe they haven't seen the Bay Area and it's changing. Uh, you know, you had a really early awareness in terms of economics and how business works, even as a kid. What, you know, as you reflect back on how much maybe the Bay Area has changed or how maybe it hasn't changed, you know, what has it that been like um, for you to see it, not just as a kid, but within that purview of business and economics and all the transformation that's happened in the years since? Yeah, it's a great question. There's there's a few trends at play that I find quite interesting. I actually wrote my high school paper on rent control as a policy in San Francisco and my parents owning a home in San Francisco and having multiple tenants. I saw some of the challenges of being a landlord and a property owner and the kind of challenges and restrictions that come in those types of policies. So, you know, housing is a topic, right, that I've observed how it's evolved in San Francisco and the Bay Area and the challenges we have around homelessness and affordability and access to housing. 
And so I don't think that has actually changed much. I think we still face, you know, the same challenges that we did where I was growing up. They just have become a lot more acute with general population growth and the economy growing and there being a lot of demand and, and attraction right to the Bay Area. And so as I think about that in the more recent trends related to the pandemic and now remote work in San Francisco being one of the, I think, last metropolitan areas and downtown financial districts to see uh, return to office happen and what that's doing to the city as a core and as a place that people occupy, right? It looks very different downtown. I started going back to the office on Mondays and Tuesdays back in September when things were optimistic and promising, persisted through that, even through the Omicron wave in January and Feb. And so trends that I see shaping the Bay Area are definitely around you know, housing, allocation of land and space, transportation, overall economy, Right, those are some interesting trends that I pay attention to and read about and track for the Bay Area and for San Francisco. Gotcha. Yeah, Ryan, one of the inflection points for a lot of folks is going to college. And you were on the West Coast and you made a huge travel to maybe the other side of the U.S. Uh, to go to the East Coast and really going to, I think, what most people consider one of the most prestigious uh, university, uh, historically black college and university at Morehouse. Could you talk about kind of what was your thought process in terms of how did you decide where you wanted to go to college and what was in your mind? And what was that experience like when you made the trip over and landed in Morehouse? Thanks for the question. I'd say there's lots of intersecting kind of ideas and momentum forces that delivered me to Morehouse College, if you will, for my college experience. I'd say it starts with the college application process where I know that I applied to nine schools. I was first accepted to UCLA with no financial aid. So it was a little bit of a double-edged you know, sword and that, you know, happy to be accepted, but no financial aid still made it a little bit challenging. And let's be honest, quite challenging and perhaps out of reach. The second acceptance I got was to Emory University in Atlanta, also with no financial aid. So things were looking a little tricky for me. And then I got six rejection letters in the mail in one day. Oh my gosh. And I was quite <laughs> devastated. I have to say, I remember crying and really feeling like my future was quite dark and in, in a bad place. And then, you know, Morehouse College, being Morehouse College in an HBCU, I wouldn't be an alum, right, of one of those institutions if I couldn't also poke fun at the fact that they were late, right, in getting their uh, acceptance letters and responses back to people. But I was accepted and I earned a full academic scholarship. So for me, it was almost a no-brainer to end up at Morehouse College. I also had a couple elder classmen and good friends of mine that I had known from French American who were at Morehouse. So I had visited Morehouse previously, right on a campus tour, and slept on the floor of a dorm room in Graves Hall with one of my, uh, you know, classmates and friends from French American, and really loved it. And so, you know, when I arrived into to Morehouse, my came with my dad and my sisters, moved on to campus. I have to say, I was super excited, but also there's culture shock for me. Coming from San Francisco, right? Diverse, kind of small place, moving you know, to the South. This is 2000, right? This is pre-Obama years. And so there's still like racial tension. And quite frankly, I'm mixed race. My dad is black. My mom is white. My dad's from New York City, Harlem. My mom's from Elkhart, Indiana. They met in Chicago. I won't tell that story. Showing up in Atlanta, I'm still living a tweener. I remember being called red on campus. That's you know some of the terms that black folks call lighter skinned people. You can be called red or, or even yellow, depending on high yellow, depending on what your complexion is. And I also had experiences showing up in the cafeteria on like Sunday morning, not wearing church clothes. 
and people, classmates kind of saying, hey, it doesn't look like you went to church this morning. Can I ask you about your relationship with God? And there's still culture shock moving from the West Coast down to the South and to Atlanta and even being an HBCU. It was mixed emotions sometimes for me as a mixed race individual. But ultimately, I was welcomed and embraced and I've got lifelong friends and had an excellent experience. But there's certainly a transition. And I'm happy to be an alum of an HBCU and Morehouse in particular, and all of my time on the Atlanta University Center, the AUC campus with Clark and with Spelman and Morris Brown as well. I love my experience there. And I think it, it shaped quite significantly who I am today in my own you know, self-identity and connections to people and place and history. HBCUs in general have the conversation around HBCUs has really been elevated, especially with folks like even our own Vice President Kamala Harris being an HBCU alum. Could you maybe comment a bit about that and how you've seen that change and maybe your thoughts even on how that conversation has really become part of the national conversation as to why these institutions exist and their importance in our society? Yeah, absolutely. I think a little bit of history, right? Folks that may not know, HBCUs were essentially established because of exclusionary, you know, policies. African Americans and Black folks were not allowed to enroll in public universities or private universities. So this was created out of a uh, gap in the market, if I'm to choose a kind of an economic term to describe the social practice that was happening. Now that they exist and they have, you know, produced such excellent leaders, thinkers, contributors to American society, culture, academics, business, et cetera. And we have to say, you know, Obama breaking that glass ceiling brought more light and attention to HBCUs, Kamala Harris, as well as you mentioned, being a Howard alum. I also have to say that Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, who has proved herself to be an amazing philanthropist and charitable individual giving away her wealth and targeting HBCUs, you know, and lots of other institutions and her giving I think has also brought attention. I think they play, you know, HBCUs play a pivotal role in the landscape of academic institutions and what they provide to different populations of people and that intense focus on the Black experience, the Black American experience, and refining their academic and campus life programs and how they create opportunities and make partnerships with businesses for employment and other institutions for cross-disciplinary learning. Morehouse with Georgia Tech and the dual degree program for engineering. And that connects back to, I think, even Google and, and maybe uh, some other institutions and how they're trying to create different channels and pipelines to getting access to diverse talent, specifically Black Americans as well, because they're kind of left out of the technology space. We can't overlook the fact that the term that exists is called kind of Silicon Valley diversity, right? There's broad diversity and then there's Silicon Valley diversity, which includes Asian populations, but still doesn't quite include Black or, you know, Brown Latino populations. So I think the role that HBCUs play is uh, immensely important and I'm happy and privileged to have been a part of it and to say that I've got many friends and, and colleagues and contacts and acquaintances across the, the spectrum there. Ryan, you were already very successful early on, even get finishing your degree and, and graduating. How did you navigate the post-college experience before you came to the MBA program? And, and what was that like transitioning from being an undergraduate student and then now becoming kind of a professional in, in industry? What was that like for you? Yeah, thanks for the question. I have to say it's, it was pretty smooth for me. I think that I was always drawn to business. I knew I wanted to you know, work in business. I was not particularly the creative type. And I always say, you don't want to hear me sing. You don't want to really see me dance. I can't play instruments. 
And so that means that it was not work or effort for me to read the you know business pages of the newspapers. I had a subscription to the WSJ in college, probably because some institution funded that. And I was one of the people that signed up and said, I'd read it. And my roommates would poke fun of me because I was the guy reading the Wall Street Journal in the dorm room. It's like, who is this person? Because that was always of interest to me. I was curious about how the geopolitical landscape worked, right? How people made decisions, how people in power in particular made decisions, and what's the business and econ incentives behind their motivations. Economics at the end of the day is a study of choice and the allocation of resources, and that impacts all of decisions that, that humans make in our collective society. That's the backdrop and context for, you know, I was active in seeking out internships in my summer, you know, during the summers, between years, I spent my first summer internship between freshman and sophomore year, actually being a personal assistant to the CEO of a company called MZA Events, who puts on and produces all of the AIDS walk fundraisers all over the country. I think those are still a thing. I have to admit, I haven't been tracking that as much recently. Then my second summer between sophomore and junior year, I was fortunate enough to intern at Goldman Sachs in the equities rotational program. And I was building my professional experience, again, exposure to those types of industries and business environments and office environments and cultures, learning how people communicate and observing how people behave and conduct themselves. There's so much that you can learn through osmosis of just observing if you're an intent active observer, which also has implications to how things work now in the remote world where people are not in offices, but I won't go down that tangent. And my third summer between uh, junior and sophomore, I'm sorry, junior and senior year, I was fortunate enough to earn an internship with McKinsey and Company. And so I ultimately decided to start my professional career after graduating as a business analyst at McKinsey. And really it was because one, I had seen the valedictorian of kind of two classes ahead of me go to McKinsey and was inspired by that individual who seemed to have everything figured out to go, you know, work at an institution like, you know, McKinsey. Furthermore, I say, you know, being a consultant allows you exposure to a, a variety of industries and functions, right? So you get to see different industries, how they operate, what are the incentives and lots of functions, which are, you know, consistent across industries, but then have their own nuanced flavors and, and differences and how they're applied, if you will. So being a consultant gives you opportunity to taste the flavors of industries and functions. And so for me, I was also fortunate enough to, you know, get an offer from McKinsey for full-time employment after graduating. And so I had an awesome summer between graduating Morehouse in 2004 and then going and joining McKinsey. And so that summer actually backpacked, trekked by land with my cousin from Cape Town, South Africa to Nairobi, Kenya by land with paper maps, pre-smartphone. Oh, wow. Right. So we spent about you know 90 days on land and sea and boat and uh, bus and hitchhike back of the truck and all of it right on that trip. So I had another really transformational experience for me as a person and individual. And it opened up my eyes to all these economic opportunities and to how the misallocation of resources and perhaps corruption in some you know governments prevent basics like electrification and transportation. I used to think of the like the three pillars of productive kind of modern economies, which were electricity, water, and transportation. So electrification, irrigation, and transportation is how I thought about them. So that was uh, very exciting and very shaping in my outlook on life. And I think that was influenced by classes that I had taken at Morehouse College called the Economy of South Africa, taught by Professor Ross, I remember. 
And he was an influential econ professor of mine at Morehouse College, opened up my eyes to different parts of the world and wanting to visit there and then ultimately getting to spend a lot of time there thereafter. After I left McKinsey, spending two years as a business analyst, I decided to go volunteer and be a volunteer consultant for a company called TechnoServe, a nonprofit 501c3 that focuses on uh, small business building in the countryside. And so I was a volunteer consultant for TechnoServe in the Mpumalanga province in the east part of South Africa for a year before joining Haas. I actually did all of my Haas applications using a dial-up connection in South Africa. I had to drive two hours to a dial-up connection and I would write my essays on paper or my, my laptop and then drive to this dial-up you know, internet cafe, deal with the scratchy sounds and upload my essays into the, the MBA Haas platform and do that over a period of weekends to actually complete my application. One of the questions I get a lot from folks in my own personal journey, and I imagine maybe you have gotten it, you, know, you studied economics and French uh, at Morehouse, and you had worked at an amazingly you know, successful firm like McKinsey. You had traveled the world and really seen probably more than most people would dream to see in a lifetime. Why go back to the MBA? I get that question a lot, and I'm sure a lot of folks also get that question. You know, What was your motivation to apply to an MBA program in general? And then how did you end up deciding to apply to Haas versus maybe any of the other programs that are out there? Sure. It's a great question. I have to say that, look, what I observed as a young professional joining McKinsey was pretty much almost a formula. And the formula was do a few years as an analyst, go to a prestigious graduate program, right? Probably an MBA, maybe a you know public policy program or a law degree, and essentially come back to McKinsey. And in a few years, you'll be a partner and you'll essentially be rich and be able to ride off into the sunset. I know now that life is not that simple and lots of things have changed. But quite frankly, I was convinced that was the formula and the path to success, or at least part of what I aspired to have in terms of a career and the way people would look up to partners and admire their ideas and the, the clout and the power that they had and how people would automatically be quiet as soon as they spoke because they were so interested and intent and hung on every word that came out of their mouth. And that looked attractive to me. I, I also knew that as I was leaving my analyst time after two years at McKinsey, I felt like I would, had been in the ivory tower pushing paper, I'm making slides in Excel. And I was like, let me go see what it's like, you know, get your hands dirty at the ground level, which is what drew me to be a volunteer consultant at TechnoServe and go work at the ground level, literally you know, in developing countries. So I really enjoyed that. But then also, let's be honest, I wanted to have a good living and make a good living and earn some money, right? So uh, it was clear that I wanted to kind of, you know, go get an MBA, and it allowed me to boomerang back to San Francisco, reconnect with other old friends and have a new experience in the Bay Area and in San Francisco as, a, as an adult, if you will. I left after high school at, at age of 18 in 2000 and then came back in 2007 and nine because I ended up leaving again and going back to McKinsey in Atlanta. But Haas embraced me and welcomed me with open arms. I had a great experience on campus. I actually think I valued those kind of smaller class size to be able to you know, connect with people and make close friends. And also just being close to home, it felt good. At that time, I actually lived in the, my mom's house, the house I grew up in, which meant that I was a little bit more removed from the Berkeley campus as others. And actually, in retrospect, I should have spent more time on campus connecting with people. Instead, I kind of retreated back to my old stomping ground with high school friends and things like that in San Francisco. But hey, it was a great experience all around nonetheless. What are some of the lasting memories you have from being on campus and your experience actually oh. in the MBA program? 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, look, there were so many great experiences. A, the Haas campus is beautiful. It's amazing, right? No matter where you live in Berkeley, you think of the clock tower at Haas as a landmark, right? You can see it from many places. It's a sprawling, beautiful campus with lots of green space and open space. So just simply being around the Haas Pavilion and that building up at the top of the hill, right next to the law school, has great memories for me, just sitting on the steps and hanging out with people, going to Tuesday night, Teen Apple, as we used to call it, right? Tuesday night at the Bears Lair for beers and, and sports talk and March Madness and any of this stuff. Teen Apple was awesome. Going to some of the intramural sports, right, with classmates and watching them play rugby going to the soccer tournaments, going up to Tahoe with classmates for ski weekends when we rented houses during the season. We're just, you know, amazing, great experiences and lasting memories. So I'd say the campus is huge, right? And you can get lost along all the buildings. Berkeley has top ranked, top 10, top five, number one programs across so many disciplines. I also remember quite specifically how there was freedom and liberty to take some credits from other departments. So I took a class on energy infrastructure finance at law school. I also took classes from Dan Kamen in the, I think, physics and energy resources group department around energy exchange and climate change and those types of topics. So I really appreciated that you can cross-register in different departments. It's just, you know, a beautiful place, a nice little enclave within a city that still very much feels like an academic institution, a university campus. And it's just all around magical, in my opinion. That's awesome, Ryan. I know, Ryan, we were sharing before we started recording, you know, you're super passionate about sustainability, economics, kind of climate change and social justice. Did you feel that Haas helped to cultivate that kind of drive that you already had? Or what was it like touching on those topics, not just in the classwork, but maybe also in your exposure to other students or professors and faculty during your time at Haas? Sure. No, it's a great question. I mean, I think it definitely shaped my interest, kind of sparked and initiated my interest in climate change. I was there 2007 to 2009. If you recall, there was right at the, so I was in school before the crash happened and then it happened in, in 2008. And so our classmates, we were facing one of the toughest job markets ever at the time. It was something where 90% of students, I may get the stat wrong, had job offers, you know, at the end of January. And in our year, only like, you know, 60% of classmates had job offers even by like the end of March. So there was a fair number of people going to entrepreneurship, but then a fair number of people who just jobs were, were thin and dry at that time. But what was really interesting to me was joining the, the Burke Club, right? The Berkeley Energy and Resources Group, which really focused on climate change. Also, there was a, there was another oil crisis around that time. I don't know if people remember, but gas prices had spiked back then too, also to above five bucks a gallon. I remember taking Dr. Severin Borenstein class on energy markets and utility kind of pricing, which was very interesting to me. Also connected back to the energy infrastructure finance course that I'd taken at the law school. So I started to be interested in the economics of climate change, right? And because I believe that externalities, right, are one of the biggest like leakages, right, in economic value chains. And the fact that we don't price carbon as an externality and its tremendous cost and impact it has on the environment and therefore people and health and et cetera, and all the things that, you know, are too long to name, right? We're really critically important. So from an economic standpoint, I feel like climate change is really a resource allocation challenge, right? We're not allocating the right resources to the right technologies because we have solutions to lots of the polluting challenges that we have. They're just not economic enough to deploy at scale. So it's an economic challenge to solve 
you know, many of challenges and problems we face. Circular economies and producing goods that can be, you know, 100% recycled and reused like aluminum, right? Aluminum is an infinitely sustainable resource because it can be melted and reused infinite times at almost very little energy loss. It takes about 80% less energy to produce an aluminum can from an existing aluminum can than it does from virgin aluminum. So if we can think about ratios and things like that for all these other materials that we use for human goods consumption, we can address some of the climate change challenges that we have. Ryan, one of the, you know, your your post-MBA career has really, for a lot of people, I think, is, would be considered a dream. Like you mentioned, you went back to McKinsey and had a lot of success there. And then further on, got to do more, even bigger work, including doing things like working in renewables and working at Google before even taking on the challenge and the work that you're doing today, which is really interesting kind of strategy and economic consulting at Keystone. Could you maybe touch on a bit of what that journey was like for you and then also what you're doing today at Keystone and, and what are some of the challenges and problems that Keystone is helping customers to solve in that area of kind of strategy and economic consulting? Sure. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, to kind of pick up where I left off before, after my time at Berkeley, I have to say that one thing that I might have done differently, right, is, as I said before, continue to taste the flavors of business. So you get to do that in consulting. And as I got back to, you know, Berkeley campus, I was maybe, oh, let's go ahead and admit it. I was probably a little bit lazy that I had this offer to return to McKinsey. So it felt like, hey, I've got this like golden ticket, if you will, to go back to a really prestigious job. And so that kind of didn't, having that golden ticket in my back pocket took a little bit of the kind of aspiration that I could have had to continue to taste the flavors, right? And learn as much as possible, be as exposed as possible to different employment options across different industries, whether that be more creative or in different functions, or entrepreneurial or, or something like that. Anyhow, I went back to McKinsey, continued to have great experiences. That's where I had an opportunity to work in oil and gas and safety and operational risk and think about organizational behavior and design, you know, very much influenced by my OB classes, my organizational behavior classes right at Berkeley and thinking about congruency models and how individual motivations and communication styles and spans of control, right? And incentives and performance management policies all come together to create environments where people make decisions and how they make decisions in those systems are actually influenced by factors that we design. So that was quite interesting to me. But anyhow, my time at McKinsey post MBA was great. I learned a ton, but eventually personal life kind of came involved, right? Meaning I had met somebody, I had met somebody that I was dating and they lived in Europe and I was trying to get transferred to different offices where we could be together and it just wasn't really working out. So I also tell people that while we all want our like, you know, career stories to be the hockey stick shape of just like up and to the right always, right? Like life comes into play and not, and maybe you don't always tell employers this, but some of the career decisions you make are because of life consequences or life factors outside of that. So I decided to leave McKinsey to move up to the Northeast to be together with my you know, girlfriend at the time who was working in pharma, who previously lived in Europe and then had a job in New Jersey where lots of pharma companies are in the US. And so that's what drew me to Tamra. I was actually headhunted by Headhunter. Tamra is a Norwegian company that focuses on industrial manufacturing equipment. They make high-speed belts with high-tech sensors on them, like x-rays, laser spectroscopy, cameras, different light sensors, so that they can sort materials on high-speed belts in lots of different applications. So in mining, for example, it takes lots of 
water and electricity to process boulders that might have you know precious metals or gemstones in them. So you basically put medium-sized rocks on high-speed belts and you x-ray them and you sort out the ones that have diamonds and gold and you don't process the others. But I worked in the recycling part of that business where they use those sensors to sort recyclable materials in municipal recovery facilities or MRFs, basically the waste processors and handlers in those stinky facilities that you drive by as you're leaving the city. Tamra has sorting equipment in those applications. And they also have something called a reverse vending machine, which is a machine that reads barcodes on beverage containers so you can get your nickel or your 10 cents back in deposit states. There's 11 deposit states in the U.S. and there's you know a handful of deposit countries. So my role there was focused on building loyalty programs onto reverse vending machines to get people to recycle more. And that role is essentially focused on understanding and dissecting what's the value chain of a recyclable beverage. The aluminum example that I give you is that, look, aluminum, you know, each can is worth about a number of pennies, right? But if you aggregate those, right, into a central location, it becomes economic to compact them into a cube and have a truck pick that up and have a truck drive that to a recycling facility and recycle that cube of aluminum that weighs about 800 pounds into virgin cans. And it's more economic and environmentally friendly to do that than to you know, let them sit in a landfill for the rest of human existence. I learned a ton about the economics and value chains of waste facilities and waste in general and kind of unsexy businesses like that. So it actually gives me a lot of joy and satisfaction to like walk through a MRF, a municipal recovery facility, and see everything that's happening and what technology they've got in place and how they're sorting things, where trucks show up and how they unload and load. And I guess I'm a nerd about that stuff. So that's a little bit about my trajectory in those two roles. And then eventually we got married and uh, started to have kids and needed to be back in close to family where we'd have some extra help because it definitely takes a village. And so I wanted to get back to the West Coast, started seeking jobs there and trying to land basically a two-career geolocation move and buying a house and finding housing in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Like almost impossible feat. So we went about trying to solve that equation one variable at a time. First, my wife at the time, she found a job, right? Then we, we were looking at housing. Then we bought a house. We bought a house sight unseen, probably like crazy people to spend every dollar that you've ever earned on a property that you've never actually physically seen with your own eyes. Seems kind of crazy, but luckily it has worked out. And then I was fortunate enough to get recruited by Google and I joined the you know strategy and operations team in the mid-market ads business where I was basically focused on building go-to-market strategies for the 2,000-odd sellers that managed about a billion dollars in revenue per week at the time. So huge, tremendous, cross-functional global business where I was exposed to you know, product engineering and a group called PSA, product and sales activation that sits in between engineering and development and the StratOps teams, as well as legal and PR and the kind of upper-end LCS is called large uh, client services. So Really, truly global experience or, or great experience in the global business that was growing way too fast for the, the base that it was growing from. Just incredible. So learned a ton there. But then once again, things are not always perfect as they might seem. And I unfortunately had a really toxic manager there and was pushed out of that organization and, and had to leave. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, then also be headhunted and recruited. If you might catch the theme, I've been headhunted a few times, but to come to Keystone. And so people always ask, why did you go back to consulting? It doesn't seem to be the natural path. People started consulting, they use that as a springboard and then they go do other things. For me, I decided to come back because it was a smaller firm 
where I could join more towards the top third of the leadership hierarchy and have great opportunities to be a coach and a mentor to junior people, share my experiences. But then also what's new for me, where I'm learning a ton is around litigation support, right? So this is work that Keystone Strategy does where we apply the triad of disciplines of economics, strategy, and technology in complex high stakes litigation matters that might deal with competition, you know, uh, competition and therefore antitrust, valuation, tax, or IP matters. So we get to work with preeminent world-class experts, right? PhDs on each of these topics, whether they're computer science PhDs, economists, econometricians, statisticians, folks who have degrees in other engineering disciplines related to medical devices, and we work with them and support them as expert witnesses. And so I get to learn legal proceedings. I get to be exposed to law firms and learn about how lawyers do their work and attorneys and legal procedure, and also how to build robust, logical arguments that are defensible in court, which are actually very different than building arguments and talking points and PowerPoint slides to deliver to C-suite executives. Because let's be honest, everybody, you can hand wave your way through some assumptions in a PowerPoint slide with $800 million in opportunity upside at 6% CAGR growth rate. If we do these four things that have these enablers and like the slide looks pretty, right? And like that doesn't fly in a courtroom. You have to bring a different set of rigor and analysis and support and make sure that you've explored and exhausted every avenue of information because you have to be ready for cross-examination, right? And why didn't you look at this? And you could have looked at that and you didn't. And so tell me why type of scenarios. And so that's a tremendous, that's new space for me. That's white space for me. That's learning. And I'm having a great time. Ryan, I think it kind of goes to that saying, you know, one transition is, is hard enough. I know um, folks just trying to graduate and go into the workplace is difficult, but you being able to navigate all of those changes, but also really utilizing that in to compound in terms of effectiveness and impact is just truly, I think, a dream for a lot of us who hopefully will graduate and have such an amazing career and path. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on some of the areas that you said you're super passionate about, especially around economics and maybe the future. What are some of the things that you see, especially in the current environment, that are really interesting for you? And, and how does that come into play with what you're doing at work or your other areas of passion as you're thinking about not just what's happening today, but you know ways to impact the future? I know tons of Hossies uh, you know, are, are planning that and trying to see how do I manage my professional career, but also tie these passions as well. How do you see that from an economics perspective in your work and your passions outside of work as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I What comes to mind for me is I continue to think of like double and triple bottom lines. So I learned about that at Haas. First bottom line being your business bottom line, right? What's your dollar profit, right? Your second bottom line being your kind of social impact, right? What is the impact of the business that you do in the communities where you do it? And then your third bottom line is around the environment, right? What is the impact of the environment? A little bit even more intangible than just seeing the impact on the people and communities and the air and the water and the roads and what have you and the biodiversity. For me, I often think about how can we try to aspire to more of this circular loop economy where we don't have this linear economy where you kind of extract natural resources out of, ground, out of the ground, turn them into some consumable that is then consumed and then sits in a, in a landfill forever. How do we make this more of a circular loop so that things are sustainable and perpetually. So that's something that I think about related to business and how can you essentially bring those concepts and ideas into a business vocabulary and vernacular so that you can convince stakeholders, right, to think more broadly about those further spheres of influence. So 
from an economic standpoint, to me, it comes back to, as I mentioned before, externalities, right? How do we internalize some of these external costs so that we can take the true impact of business decisions into account? Because I believe that you can have a successful accretive business that can grow with a triple bottom line, where you're actually counting a triple bottom line. And so I try to think about how can we get towards more of that type of thinking? How can we get to more of that type of accounting into our business decisions and analysis? But it's hard, right? And some people, I think it also depends on where you are in your career, right? You see that generationally, right? Some folks are willing to take more risk than others because they've either got more or less time left on the clock in their career and what they're trying to achieve and whether or not they want to buy that second house with a boat and they just need to make their numbers this quarter, this year, this cycle. And they don't care about this new idea of accounting for triple bottom line, KPI measurements, et cetera. I find that to be interesting. I also just find it interesting in terms of how people interact in these different systems, in the office dynamics and the power dynamics between management and, and labor and um, the intersection of all those economic factors on social decisions, right? We're all seeing now that after the pandemic, there's so much more to life than just, you know, working every day. And we know it's not really the great resignation anymore. It's the great reshuffling, right? People who have a new perspective on how they put value on their time, their energy, their relationships, and choosing to make changes and shifts towards better aligning, right? How they value time, energy, relationships in the work that they do. And so I just find all of that, we're at yet another disruption point, right? That's an overused word. Everyone's a disruptor. No one's a disruptor. But the pandemic was a disruptor to the previous status quo of a lot of like patterns and cadences and the way people approached life. And so I find, therefore, we're in kind of a new beginning, right? Where lots of things are possible. We can experiment with new things. We can experiment under the, hey, it's post-COVID. Let's try something new kind of moniker right? Or whatever you need to get yourself air cover. But we're at a point of lots more experimentation in systems and how people work and allocate their time. And so I find that, you know, interesting. And I think about that. That's awesome. Yeah, Ryan, I don't know if you have a, a specific organization or, you know, a cause that you'd want to promote to other folks. Folks in the past have either talked about specific schools or in, in your case, maybe something around climate or business empowerment. Is there any organization that you'd or um, cause that you think folks in the Berkeley Haas ecosystem should really pay attention to and maybe allocate their resources or their, their time to support as part of kind of the greater efforts that you think are, are worthwhile? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Look, I think sticking on theme for me, right? I direct my charitable giving every year towards three pillars. So one is environment and conservation. I bring attention to the, the California state park system and the national state, state park system. I'm a, you know, a donor to those organizations each year. I also think about education. And so I value the educational opportunities I've had. And so I also, you know, donate back to Haas. I donate back to Morehouse College and HBCUs and where I went to high school as well, because I think it was, it has served me well. And I'd like to, for those institutions to be able to continue to serve folks who have needs, who have financial needs, because I think they do a great job. And then I'd say lastly, TechnoServe. I volunteered there, I worked with them. I also think that their impact is significant, right? I just got their email the other day saying that last year they were able to help 2.3 million, you know, impact 2.3 million lives across their footprint in terms of lifting them out of poverty, giving them opportunities and access to employment and entrepreneurship and, and business and income. And so, for me, I tend to donate and have relationships with organizations or institutions that I have experience with. 
And so those are the ones that I would suggest or raise attention to. But there are, there are so many good ones. I'll, I tend to try to also follow along on the folks who've done the work in figuring out which institutions are good at putting their programming dollars to use. So I know that there is a website out there that is like donors choose or something like that. I'm probably misquoting it, but I think those are, are good ideas. I mentioned Mackenzie Scott. I think she's doing good things. Probably go find a list of the organizations she's donated to and just follow along in her footsteps. Why? Because she's already done the work in figuring out which institutions are good at what they do. And therefore I'm not going to recreate the wheel on that. I'm going to trust those decisions. Ryan, we definitely appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and, and to have you as a guest on, on the show. As, as per tradition, we tend to end uh, with a lightning round, some really fun and fast questions. And so if you'd be down for it, we'd love to go through some of them that we've uh, prepped for today. Oh, absolutely. Please. Yeah. First and foremost, you know, as, as a Bay Area native, you know, San Francisco native, one of the questions we always ask is, what's one of your favorite places to eat in the Bay Area? So Ryan, what's your recommendation for uh, a place to get food? Oh, you guys are good. Tell you, in high school, I wrote a book with my friend that we never published. It was called San Francisco's Top 10 for Under 10. Oh, wow. Where you could get tax tip and beverage, meal tax tip and beverage for under 10 bucks. Unfortunately, with inflation, that doesn't really exist anymore. But you know, what, what, one of the places I'll, I'll name is, look, one of my favorite taquerias is Taqueria Cancun. It's on mission in 19th in San Francisco. Everybody's got their favorite taqueria. And so I know that that's, you know, bound to cause some controversy. But for me, that's one of my favorites. That's awesome. Next question. What was one of your favorite classes uh, that you took while you were at the business school? Oh, now that one is a hard one, I have to admit, because so I'm going to say it's like a three-way tie. I'm going to dodge the question and give three. And so <laughs> one of them is certainly organizational behavior. I'm forgetting the professor's name there. It was a woman, but it was incredible. I just learned so much about how organizational design influences interactions and decisions and power dynamics, et cetera. And that was a discipline I wasn't aware of. So I'd say that one, certainly. And then it's probably the other two classes that I've mentioned. The Dr. Severin Bornstein's Energy Markets class. I don't know what the title of it is anymore, where we did lots of game theory around oil prices and oil production levels. You know, we did a game theory exercise when we were all different OPEC nations. We gamed out different scenarios. That one was uh, really interesting and very educational for me. And then the energy infrastructure finance class that was cross-registered at the law school opened up my mind to, you know, how do you actually produce, right, and develop these cross-state, cross-jurisdiction, cross-funding bodies where you have so many complex stakeholders with different incentives at play and different timelines? And how do you actually get that stuff built, right? Like specifically power lines that have, they're regulated by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and in the state of California by the CUPC, the California Public Utilities Commission, and funders and consortiums of funders with debt covenants. And I didn't know what a debt covenant was before that class. And so I think that one was really educational for me as well. Awesome. And then two more questions. All right. What's uh, one piece of advice or, or one that either you've received or that you give to folks, whether it's a professional or in a personal capacity? Oh, good question. I would say if I move out of the business realm for a minute, right, I'd say a piece of advice that I received recently was actually around emotional intelligence from my therapist. And it's around creating and setting boundaries. I think personal boundaries allow you to love yourself and love others at the same time, which means 
you are able to communicate what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And I think if I then translate that very personal kind of emotional intelligence skill into the business realm, it means thinking about what are your personal boundaries around work? What are your personal boundaries around communication, right? What are your passion areas and therefore things that you really enjoy doing and want to work on? Maybe things that you're less interested in. But if you can think about and reflect on what your personal boundaries are, it'll make you a more confident and self-sufficient and just empowered individual to communicate clearly, which I think increases understanding and therefore empathy and therefore kind of collaboration and alignment overall. And so that's a piece of advice that I recently received and I would give to others. And last question, Ryan, what's one thing that uh, gets you excited about the future? Ooh, one thing that gets me excited about the future. I think that people say kind of technology or what have you in lots of different ways, applied in different ways in businesses. I think what gets me excited about the future is all the people in kind of underdeveloped economies that are now being connected to us and all kind of the new oceans of ideas that I think will be able to be connected to the already connected parts of the world and create new discoveries and new ideas and ways of doing things. We've kind of, you know, still been operating under the Western civilization way of doing things for the past several yep. hundred years. And I think as globalization and connectivity and internet is coming about and costs are being lowered. So there's you know, access is broadened to larger population groups. We're going to get new things are going to happen. And I'm excited about that and what's going to come out of the continent of Africa and Latin America and the young parts of Asia that are later in their development. That stuff's exciting to me. That's awesome. Ryan, it's been amazing to be in conversation today. I just want to say thanks again for joining us uh, on the podcast and we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. And this is my first podcast and it was a great experience. So thank you for making it so. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.